Thanks for pressing play. We are living at a time of historical cultural and racial consequence in the United States. Some may even call it a moment of existential examination. People are asking very big questions about fundamental design points around their life. How do they want to work, live, and play? And many thoughtful Americans are also asking themselves about our country design. What kind of future do we want? Can we come together to create that future? And at times of great questioning or times of crisis and change, many of us turn to family, friends, and faith for solace. And even those who are not particularly religious can feel comforted by legendary faith leaders. Our guest today is Pastor Quentin Mumphrey. He's a native of Chicago's South Side and is the founder and senior pastor at New Hope Covenant Church. It's a contemporary urban church with a classic experience in a modern environment. Pastor Quentin is also the co-author with Eddie Yoon, Pastor Dave Ferguson, and myself of a Harvard Business Review post about justice deposits, encouraging people, people and companies for that matter, to move some of their cash deposits to black-owned banks. And that's how I got to know um, the pastor. And I'd say to you, you know, even if you're not that religious... I think you're going to love this conversation because uh, Pastor Quentin Mumphrey is a very special, dare I say, legendary man. Uh, We're brought to you by my good friends at NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to get your free product tour of NetSuite from Oracle, the number one cloud business system. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every answer. And because Splunk works at the data level, Splunk is a legendary security platform. Visit splunk.com slash D to E today. Also, while you're on the internet... (laughs) Why not visit Lockhead.com and check out Category Pirates, the newsletter for people with a different mind and the authority, of course, on category design. And what I drink every morning now is Malibu Milk, the number one organic flax milk. Visit MalibuMilkWithAY.com today. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. So, Pastor, how are you? I'm well. How you doing, Chris? I'm great. It's so good to see you in person. I know. Finally, you know, after corresponding over email and the group chats and everything, so good to get to put a face with the with the name and the and the chat. Well, and I feel like we're brothers, even though this is the first sort of real time we're meeting. <laughs> right, right, right. Over uh, since it's been, I mean, it's nearly a year now. Well, at least the better half of a year. Yeah, um, going back. I since late summer, early fall. So uh, I've been looking forward to this very much. And I have a thousand questions for you. But before I sure. get to any of my questions, I'm really curious, what's on your mind right now? Man, so many things. You know, I think that, uh, you know, my mind works just in kind of different ways because I'm always thinking on multiple different tracks, right? You have the, you know, the personal level things, of, you know, just regular life. Things, little my, you know, <laughs> I think a little minute things like, you know, okay, what am I going to work on in the gym tomorrow? You know, I'm, and I've got some writing projects that I'm doing right now. So, okay, where I'm at on my writing, my self-imposed deadlines, <laughs> um, you know, but then I think of high level things, you know, of course I pastor church. So I'm always thinking about that. And, you know, one of the things about pastoring is, you know, you're always thinking about it in two different tracks. You're thinking about the people themselves and you're thinking about 
the organization and this, and the movement there. You know, then, uh, you know, I was thinking about um, just the state of our world. Uh, so many things that are happening, um, you know, in our, in our society, in our country. Um, and, and, you know, I, I know that this week I didn't, I didn't watch uh, recently the, um, the state of the union or the first 100 days address of president Biden, but I was just kind of watching some of, some of the social media comments around it and some of the response to it. And so just listening and, um, a lot of different things. I think my mind is always just kind of spinning in a million different directions. And so, um, what's it like being a pastor, you know, in, in Chicago at this moment in history? Ooh, uh, that's a good question. You know, I think one of the things that I appreciate, and I'm, and I'm Chicago born and bred, you know, grew up on the South side of Chicago. Some of my family's from the South. My dad grew up in Southern Georgia. And my mom's side of family is from Tennessee. So, you know, I've got kind of a, a different kind of perspective because I have both Southern and Northern influences. Uh, but growing up in Chicago, Chicago has always been a, a great city, but a troubled city, and meaning that Chicago has the best and worst of everything, right? I worked for Chicago Public Schools. You know, um, I think I shared with some of you guys before that I work, you know, I do a lot of work outside of my church. Uh, you know, I've got 20 years in the education industry in the field. And I worked for Chicago Public Schools. And one of the things about a district like Chicago Public Schools is we have some of the greatest schools in the country and some of the worst. Um, so Chicago, I often tell people, has the best and worst of everything, you know, except for food. We, we, we only have the best food, right? <laughs> so, uh, so Chicago has the best and worst of everything except food. You know, Chicago has uh, great wealth in some pockets and great poverty in some pockets. You can literally take a drive in Chicago. Uh, I live on the south side of the city. And I could take you to a place on the south side of the city where you'll see $2 million homes and we can drive less than five minutes away and, and see deep pockets of poverty. And so, you know, in this point of history, I think I go back, you know, my mind, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm kind of a student of history, especially black history in America. 2019 marked the 100th year uh, anniversary or commemoration of uh, what was known as Red Summer, uh, the race riots of 1919, which Chicago had one of the most um, kind of horrific race riots in the, in the country's history in 1919. And so I think about Chicago's history and I think about where we are right now. There's been some progress in the city, but there's still a long way to go. And I think being a pastor in Chicago, you see people in real time and in real life. You know, like I said, I pastor on the south side of the city and there's a lot of poverty on the south side, but there's also some hardworking people on this side of the city. And people are really just trying to manage life, you know, there are some people who say, you know what, we, we need to change the world. And there's other people that are like, look, I just need to figure out how to feed my kids and and keep a roof over our head and pay my car note so uh, I can get to work. Uh, so you have kind of those different things. And I think, as I said earlier, it's always kind of, I, I like the word dynamic tension. And what I mean by that is it's always kind of holding two potentially opposite realities together at the same time, meaning that I'm a believer that God is always at work in the world, but yet there's trouble in the world, right? I'm a believer that people want the best, but sometimes do the worst. And I think that part of that is just the human condition. So being in Chicago at this time in history, I think that especially looking back to last summer where we saw the riots and everything, and, you know, you know, from conversations that, you know, with Dave and Eddie and others that, uh, you know, myself and some others, we, we got involved in some of the things that were happening last summer as the riots were going on, uh, me and some other guys, we went outside and, and, and I caught a little bit of flack for this. Me and some other guys, we went outside and stood in front of uh, some of the black owned businesses on the South side. 
to protect them from getting looted and vandalized. Because one of the things that's a reality, these were people that aren't members of my church. They're just people who have businesses in in our communities. And the South Side is a pretty big place. And so one of the things that I realized, and I was sharing this with another pastor friend, if a big box retailer, nothing against them, but if they get hit, they have a lot of cushions, right? They have insurance policy, all kinds of things in place, right? They're prepared. But for some of these business owners and entrepreneurs, a hit to them is devastating. And it could mean, I mean, some of these people have put their life savings into these businesses. I mean, they've hedged their bets on this thing. And so we wanted to make sure that some of those businesses, and it's hard enough to get investment in many of our communities already. So a, a group of us just went out and stood in front of some of the businesses. And as people were looting and busting windows out, we were like, hey, this is a black owned business. These are folks in our community. They're off limits. And and we really did not get pushback. I mean, the looters, I know this might sound strange, but the riders were respectful, <laughs> you know, um, in the midst of everything else that was happening. I know that, you know, some people and, and I didn't tell my, 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 I didn't tell my family, my mom and my sibling, I didn't tell them that I was going out there until after the fact, <laughs> so, um, you know, but, um, now, pastor, I just, I have to ask you, how tall are you? I'm six one and I weigh about two forty. Yeah. So and what can you bench press? <laughs> Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty strong. So I'm in the gym about five days a week. It would be safe to describe you as a big man. Yes. Is that a fair? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and uh, actually, this reminds me of this funny thing. This buddy of mine started this group that he calls the League of Extraordinarily Large Gentlemen. <laughs> and they have these cool t-shirts and stuff. I, I am really? one of the smallest in the group and I'm, I'm six feet, okay. about a hundred pounds. Okay. So I'm curious, as you're standing out there uh, protecting some mm-hmm. of these businesses, uh, and you're and you're having success keeping the looters and the rioters away, how much of it is because you're a man of God, and how much of it is because of the size of your shoulders? <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, it's about fifty fifty. <laughs> I think um, you know, I uh, I grew up in a church in uh, on the south side of Chicago that really influenced a lot of my faith formation. Uh, Salem Baptist Church of Chicago, uh, led by Pastor James Meeks, who's the founder of the church. And, the, you know, growing up as a teen in the youth ministry in that church, um, our, you know, we were always kind of radical in that sense that we we went to where trouble was. We went to where hurting people were. You know, we would pray in front of crack houses. Um, you know, there was a time when uh, there was a, a, a particular strip club in the city that had underage girls dancing and we went and prayed and shut it down. Uh, and so, um, you know, we've, we've always kind of had that sort of edge. And I think I've carried that into my adult life, that part of what I believe it means to be a man of God and a man of faith is that we don't um, just run and turn our head when trouble is there. Uh, but we go, uh, you know, the, the scriptures ca- call us to be salt and light. And I believe part of that is showing up where light is needed. So, and it helps that I'm, I'm not a little guy. So, you know, that also helps, but, um, yeah, I think it's probably about 50, 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the Lord gave you those shoulders for a reason, I'm guessing. Right. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad about it <laughs> and I'm doing my best to be in the gym to keep them. <laughs> <laughs> and one of my favorite stories, and of course it's not in the Bible, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, a story that's near and dear to my heart is of course the story of St. Christopher. Mm-hmm. You know, and how he chose to serve the Lord in his own way, um, but he chose to use his uh, his size and his strength as a warrior 
to uh, mm-hmm. to serve God. Mm-hmm. And so I guess there's many ways we can all serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and I think one of the part of the beauty of that is there's so many different needs for serving and there's so many different avenues that we can serve through, you know, um, uh, there's this, this whole thing called the seven mountains of culture and, you know, it's education, it's media, it's, uh, government, it's you know faith. And so there's different areas that we can all serve God in. And I think that, you know, the thing is just wherever you are, serve the best you can there. Yes. Now, I think there's this sort of maybe undeclared paradigm of God where people sort of act as though God is sort of Santa Claus in the sky, where we could sort of pray to God to win the lottery. Or, you know, one of my favorites as a a fight fan is, you know, fighters Mm -hmm. will often uh, pray to God for for support in the fight, like God cares that they mm-hmm. win, not this other fighter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And then when God does not answer these prayers, we sort of get mad at the Santa Claus in the sky. And so um, uh, I've often found this to be a strange paradigm, but because of this paradigm, when things go badly in our lives or badly in our society, we often look to God and say, well, God, you know, how can you do this to me? If you love mm-hmm. me, if you love humanity, how can you do this mm-hmm. to us? How can we have this mm-hmm. horrible virus? Or how can we have this mm-hmm. political strife? Or how can we have this horrible tragedy uh, in Syria? And, and on and on with the pain and suffering mm-hmm. in the world. And so when people come to you and say, you know, I feel betrayed by God because he's mm-hmm. letting all these bad things happen. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a conversation that you have, yes? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, even going back to my seminary days, you know, uh, and it's funny because I tell younger, especially preachers that are starting out in ministry, uh, seminary is only part of the preparation. There's a whole education that you get that's in it's real time. You know, like Mike Tyson says that, you know, you're fighting. Everybody's got a plan to get punched in the mouth. You know, seminary, you know, and I, I am a fighter. And I love MMA. I like UFC. Um, so um, you look like you could beat uh, up half the guys in the UFC. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, that that was like a, a little secret fantasy about like, I wonder if I could train for a UFC fight. <laughs> Do you know, there's a um, one of my favorite fighters in the UFC. He's from Cuba. Oh, shit. I'm going to blank on his name now. Uh, uh, Yoel Romero. And his nickname, okay. he's a deeply religious guy, and his his nickname, he calls himself the Soldier of God. Really? I've heard the name. I, I have to follow some of his fights and everything. I uh, I saw a little bit of the highlights of the fight. He's I a scary dude. Weekend. Is he? Very okay. scary. Yuval Romero is one of the scariest guys to ever walk into the octagon. And, and when he gets announced as the Soldier of God, you're like, oh, holy shit, here he comes. <laughs> They <laughs> I love it. I love it. But yeah, I'm a UFC fan. I think that one of the things that, you know, um, in seminary, you learn, you know, the theological and the philosophical side of things. And you have these debates when, you know, theodicy, which is the question, why do good things happen to bad or bad things happen to good people? One of the things that I often say to people when we have these conversations is who gets to determine whether you're good? Because, you know, most, I mean, if you ask most people, they say, well, I'm a good person. And sometimes I kind of it kind of throws people for a curve when I ask them that. I said, well, you're good according to who? You know, because the fact of the matter is in life, and I, I tell this to single people all the time, too. I said, every one of us are the villain in someone's story. 
you know, the thing is when we tell our own story, we're always the hero, <laughs> you know, we're always the hero, right? Uh, anything bad that happens, it's always someone did this to me or, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I do a lot of stuff on singleness and relationships and, and it's always, you know, uh, this person, uh, you know, they, 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 they weren't ready for me. They weren't ready for what I brought to the table. They couldn't appreciate me. They couldn't value me. Uh, maybe they just didn't like you because maybe you're not as great as you think you are. <laughs> and so I know this kind of burst some both bubbles, but you know, we're all the building of someone's story. Right. And so I think one of the things that we have to ask is, um, who determines whether you're good. And I think that's a really important question. And it's not to invalidate, you know, anybody's dignity or worth as a human being. So I think that that's one of the questions we have to really ask and sit with. But because I, th- I think the other one of the things that even when we look at international policy, right, as Americans, you know, we tend to think we have the moral high ground on international issues. Um, but if you go to certain parts of the world, their view of whether we're of our goodness, if you will, it's pretty different, right? Uh, and so I think sometimes a person's goodness is subjective to their vantage point or the perspective that you're seeing from. Uh, but as it pertains to this question, I do, I have gotten that question a lot over the years. And I think one of the things that happens and one of the, the favorite um, passages in the, in the scriptures is uh, two passages from the gospel. There's two instances where the disciples, the 12, they're caught in a storm on a boat on the water. And, you know, anybody that knows anything about boating and water, the last place you want to be in a storm is on a boat, especially a boat that's not real big, you know? And so um, It's like that scene from Jaws, right, Pastor? We, we're going to need yeah. a bigger boat. That's right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, there's one passage where they're on the, on, on the boat and Jesus is on the boat with them and he's sleeping. And the Bible says that he's sleeping on a pillow. And the boat and the storm is getting really bad. And Peter says to Jesus, don't you care that we're, we're about to perish? We're like, we're about to die. This storm is about to sink this boat. Don't you care? And he weighs Jesus up and Jesus gets up. And the Bible says he rebukes the wind and the waves. He stops the storm. But then there's another passage where Jesus is in the mountain praying. And he sends, tells the disciples, get in the boat and go over to the other side of the shore. And they get in the boat and about halfway through the water, a storm hits them. And they're afraid, again, because the storm is bad. It's, you know, torrential rain, high winds, and they're afraid they're going to sink and drown. This time, Jesus comes walking on the water to them. And this is the passage where he invites Peter to step out of the boat, come walk to me on the water. And as one of the things that I taught about this, the contrast between those two stories, both times the disciples were on a boat in a storm. Both times they felt like their lives were threatened. The difference is Jesus's response in each situation. The first time he stopped the storm. The second time he didn't stop the storm, but he came to them in the storm. And I think that that teaches something about the character and nature of God. God never promised that he would stop every storm in our lives. He never promised that wind wouldn't come, that waves wouldn't crash against us, that our boat would never get hit. But one promise we have is that even if the storm hits us, He'll go to us and be with us in the storm. And so I think that for me is always the encouragement. And that's one of the things that I always share with people, you know, because we want Jesus to just always rebuke the wind and the waves, you know, just stop the storm. But sometimes God doesn't stop the storm. And for, I, don't, I don't know why, you know, I don't profess to be the expert on the mind of God. But what I do know is that one promise we do have from God is that even when, no matter how bad the storm gets, he'll be with us in the storm. 
Hmm. And I think that that's the encouragement we have when bad things do happen in the world. So God didn't promise to be Santa Claus in the sky, but he did promise no. to be with us when the uh, mm -hmm. proverbial poop hits the proverbial fan. Yeah, You know, one of the things about this Santa Claus theology and ideology, and I do believe that God blesses people and answers prayers. I believe in that. Uh, but I believe that one of the things that if we treat God only as Santa Claus, we've missed out on a big part of the character and nature of God. And we've missed out on part of God's purpose for creation. Um, you, you know, if you give a child a piece of candy every time they whine, two things are going to happen. Number one, they will never learn any discipline or the value of no. Number two, their teeth will rot. Because sometimes you don't know what you ask. When I asked someone what question one time, I said, if God had given you every single thing you ever asked for, when you asked for it, where would your life be? And they sat back and they said, wow, some of the stuff I asked for, I probably shouldn't have been asking for at the time. One thing that we realized, if God was Santa Claus, and we got every single thing. We might kill ourselves, right? <laughs> we might. Right. It would destroy us, right? If you won the lottery every time you had asked. <laughs> you know? your, your head might be screwed on wrong after a while. Oh, listen, you'd be messed up. And it goes back to the thing about, you know, you mentioned about the two fighters, right? Well, if you're asking, if you're praying to win the lottery and, and two million other people are praying to win the lottery, who determines whose prayer gets answered? So by default, by the nature of life, God can't be Santa Claus because he can't give everyone what we want. Cause sometimes we're asking for the same thing as someone else. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> again, I go back to this thing with, uh, with single folks all the time. So if two guys are, are single and they're looking at the same girl and they're both praying, they get to marry the girl. One of those prayers is not going to get answered or both of those prayers <laughs> might not get answered. Right. And so I think we have to understand this thing that this Santa Claus notion, it lends itself to a bit of selfishness. Interesting. Because we're not the only ones making the, the, making the ask. Yes. And so, so uh, God's job is not to be Santa Claus for our Christmas li list every day. <laughs> right, right, right. But sometimes we do get what we want. Yes. And, and, and we just have to, you know, take that and be appreciative and grateful. Yes. Now, I, I of course, have to ask you, this mm -hmm. has been an extraordinary time of discussion and of reckoning in our country around race. And mm -hmm. some of us are hopeful mm -hmm. that we might be at an inflection point. But I'm curious, you know, as a pastor at this moment in time, tell me how you think about race in the United States. I think about race in the United States. It's complicated. <laughs> you know, that's probably the best word that I could use to describe it. And the reason I say it's complicated, you have people on different spectrums that you have some people who say, well, you know, we're two seconds away from all-out race war. Then you have those who say, well, you know, things are better than they ever been. We, we had a black president. We now have a woman of color as the vice president. These are signs of progress. We are in a post, I've heard this term, we're in a post-racial America. I don't totally agree with either of those sides. Number one, I don't believe that the majority of Americans want a race war nor do I believe we are in a post-racial society. As a pastor and also as a Black man, I don't believe that we're in a post-racial society. And I think one of the things that is happening is we are in a day of reckoning. And I think that there are though, there are a lot of people who say, we know, I'm tired of talking about race. Why do we keep hearing about it? One of the things that we realize is 
this reckoning that's happening is 400 years coming. You know, the issue of racism in America did not just start 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. For 400 years, America, well, first, let me back up here with my, some of my sociological background here. Race is a social construct. And, is, and, and the iteration of race and racism in America is particularly unique. The reason I say it's unique is, you know, some people will argue me with that and say, well, you know, every country has race and racism it, to an extent. One of the things that's unique about America's racism uh, is that, number one, America's history is complicated. You know, this notion that, and, and I've heard people talking even recently about, you know, well, America was built on a wasteland. Well, there was some scholars say possibly up to 100 million people on this continent, you know, of the native peoples, the First Nations. And so you have that to reckon with, the, the genocide and the deaths uh, that happen. And I hate to interrupt you, Pastor, but it's, it's interesting to me how history gets taught in this country. You know, mm-hmm. I have many friends who are German, and I've spent much mm-hmm. time there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an expert on the German education system, far from it. But from what I understand, um, they get taught about World War I and World War II. Mm. And many Germans have shame about what happened. Mm. And the society seems to be trying to, and again, I, I've never lived there full time, but I do have friends there. We had had these discussions. As a society, it seems like many in Germany are um, acknowledging of what happened in the past and are trying to move forward in a very positive way, but they don't hide from it. I understand some Germans do, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I get all that, but it's taught mm-hmm. in schools. Whereas mm-hmm. to your point, most Americans and certainly children are not taught that when the people mm-hmm. who pioneered this land came, mm-hmm. they committed genocide on the people who were here. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the first facts that we have to come to grips with. And I think there is a lot of shame that comes with that. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's not taught in schools and it's uncomfortable for many people to talk about because we like to romanticize the history of America uh, in a sense of saying, okay, well, you know, the, the pilgrims and the Indians, they just, they had Thanksgiving dinner and they ate corn and turkey together and they just made an agreement that you'll live over here and I'll live over here. That's not what happened. You know, the history of America and the, the conquest of land was a series of broken treaties and agreements and, and a lot of murder, a lot of genocide, uh, even the old movies, you know, uh, the old Western movies, they're a little before my time, but the old Western movies, the Indians were always portrayed as these, you know, the savage enemy that they, they're there to be hunted. Right. So that history has not really been taught in schools. The history of slavery. You know, I, I, when I saw a, about two years ago, there was a, a big, uh, controversy because one of the textbook manufacturers started referring to slaves as workers. And a parent in a school district in another state brought that before the school board and they were concerned because again, these children don't know anything about it. And so now you have potentially a generation of kids that will grow up thinking, oh, slavery, they were just working. Well, people don't decide to just work for free for 256 years. You know, that that doesn't happen. They were they were working, but the question is why were they working? <laughs> Correct. And, and it was not, you know, they didn't just decide to work for no, for no compensation, you know? Um, and so I think that, that, that history. And, and, and the other thing is people want to say that racism was a Southern problem because slavery was primary in the South. That is not true. 
the North had its own. You asked about Chicago, and I mentioned that Chicago has always been the best and worst of everything. Chicago was a pioneer in Northern racism and segregation. The practices of redlining, restrictive covenants, and all of these things were pioneered to a large degree in Chicago. You know, uh, even Dr. Martin Luther King and Andrew Young, pioneering civil rights leaders, said that what they experienced in Chicago was unlike any level of hatred or racism they had experienced anywhere else in the country. This is Martin Luther King and Andrew Young, who is still living, said this. And Andrew Young described it this way in one of the documentaries. He said, when we would do a march in a place like Selma, Montgomery, or, you know, southern, southern cities, he said, you might have 100 or 200, you know, angry, you know, whites out there taunting them or throwing rocks or things like that. He said, when we came to Chicago and we did the march through Marquette Park, there were 10,000 angry white people out there. And Dr. King got hit in the head with a brick. I mean, it was, he said, I had never been that afraid. So I think that there's this, again, th that goes back to this whole history, act, right? We, we, we put racism and slavery, all those are Southern problems. Well, the North had its own problems with it, too. It's an American problem, and it has always been. Do I believe there has been progress? Absolutely. Um, you know, the irony of American history has always been this series of, like I said, this, this whole thing of dynamic tension, right, of these dueling realities. My father, he's going to be with the Lord now, but he uh, was a veteran of the Korean War, and he fought in one of the first integrated battalions, um, and he was on the front lines in North Korea for many, many months. And he fought for a country that when he came back, he could he had trouble getting a home loan after he and my mom got married. But he had fought for his country and was working two jobs after he came back as a veteran, but yet had to fight just for the opportunity to buy a home for his, you know, burgeoning family. Right? Um, I have uncles that were World War II veterans and fought in segregated battalions and, you know, and regiments came back and could not get jobs in places that were restricted to black men at the time. You know, I have a great uncle who fought in World War I. And there were even soldiers in World War I who came back and were attacked in uniform. And we saw recently the, the, so the officer in Virginia, who's a lieutenant, in the army in uniform that was pepper sprayed in uniform, right? For allegedly a, a, a busted taillight or something. I mean, but he's pepper sprayed and assaulted in, in uniform. So th you know, this whole notion of respectability politics that, you know, well, if the black people would just comply, here's a man in uniform, he's in his vehicle and he's not committing a crime. He's not brandishing a weapon. He's not threatening anybody. He's pulled over for allegedly some, you know, a light on his car and he ends up assaulted and pepper sprayed. And all. so, you know, this this notion of um, race in America is not going away anytime soon. And these are not just isolated incidents. I know what it's like to be profiled. You know, I know what it feels like to be followed in a store, you know, and some will say, well, you know, how are you dressed? I have been followed with a suit on and I have been followed with a hoodie on. I know what it feels like. And some of that is minor, 
compared to things that my dad, you know, and others have you know, had to endure in their time. But th- th- this notion that we're in a post-racial world is not true. Do I believe there is hope? I do believe there's hope. But I also believe that we have to stop hiding from the conversation. I think that there is a, a, a way in which we sometimes hide from the conversation of racism, either because we're tired of talking about it or because we don't feel like it will help. Or I believe that there's a thing, you know, a lot of white Americans feel a sense of guilt and it's like, well, or they feel paralyzed. Well, I don't know what to do. Or then the others say, well, you know, that was, I wasn't there when it happened. It's not my fault. You know, the reality is when we talk about justice, you know, this, this word justice is thrown around a lot, especially this past year. We just saw the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case for the murder of George Floyd. And we talk about justice. And I think that some people get really sensitive when you talk about racism and justice. There's a difference between justice and revenge. I haven't heard black folk talking about we want revenge when they say we want justice. Revenge says, uh, you know, we want bloodshed eye for an eye for every life that was lost. That's revenge. Justice simply says, I want to be, I want the, the, the same way in which the system serves others. I want to serve me. Well, and, and pastor, this might not make me very, uh, uh, this might not make me a man of God, but I, I, I'm okay with a little revenge too. I, I'm, I, I'm you know, angry. I don't even mm-hmm. want to say his name. I'm angry at the man who murdered George Floyd. Mm-hmm. I understand mm-hmm. that pain. I've been mm-hmm. through that loss. And mm-hmm. a little revenge is okay with me. And, and, and you're not alone. And if that makes me you're a bad person, you know, uh, as, I, as I know you know, one of my best friends was murdered. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to forgive the evil that murdered him. Mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. no forgiveness for them, period. Yeah. And I never will. Mm-hmm. And I understand why some people need to forgive those mm-hmm. who do that. It gives them a release. Uh, the opposite is true of me. Mm-hmm. And so, no, I don't forgive them. What they did is unforgivable. And as mm-hmm. far in my world, they're going to hell for it. And so, I, I don't know. I, I know as you're supposed to be a quote-unquote good Christian and forgive everybody <laughs> yeah. and all that. And it's like, you know, no, I, I, I'm not going to forgive them. Forgiveness is a complex thing when for humans, right? For human beings, because to say I forgive you for the deed, I have to reconcile for the feelings that were thrust upon me from the deed, right? I believe that we should always strive to forgive, but there's some things that it's just you know, it's easy to forgive. You know, someone cuts you off in traffic, <laughs> it's simpler to forgive, right? But when you talk about things like murder, you talk about things that have been life altering families that have been drastically, that there's a hole in a family's life. You know, a little girl now will grow up without her father. Right. Uh, And I think the the part of the thing that frustrates me in this discourse of racism in America is throughout the George Floyd case. We saw this in the Trayvon Martin trial. There is this uh, and it's a saying that said that. when black folk get killed, they die two deaths. They get killed and their body gets killed and then they get killed in the media. When you saw with George Floyd, the, the defense of, a, oh, well, he was, he was, on, you know, he was a high on drugs or he had an enlarged heart. Well, no, he had a knee on his neck. 
I mean, you know, the enlarged heart or whatever had not killed him all of this time. It wasn't until a day a knee was placed on his neck for nine minutes that he died. So I think that there's a way in which we, there's, there's what I call the victim blaming many times in the case of uh, Trayvon Martin, you know, well, you know, he was, he was suspicious and, you know, he had smoked weed. How many people in this country have smoked weed and are still alive to tell about it? I smoked weed yesterday. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Right. But no one followed you with a gun saying you look suspicious, right? And then felt justified in shooting you for it. No, absolutely not. So, you know, I've had my, some black friends share with me, you know, I I like to drive fast. I have mm -hmm. my own fast cars. My idea of a good time is a hundred miles an hour or more. <laughs> uh, I drive a Shelby Cobra Mustang. I don't do that because oh, nice. I want to go slow. You know, uh, uh, listen, I don't blame you. <laughs> old ladies driving Priuses in the left-hand lane are not my favorite people. <laughs> I bet. I and so bet. from time Those to time, I get pulled nerves. over for speeding, Pastor. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my black friends asked me this question. I'd never thought about this. How many times when you've been pulled over, have you been asked the following question? Is this your vehicle? Mm-hmm. The answer to that question is zero. Mm-hmm. And he told me it happens almost every time he gets pulled over. Mm-hmm. Most African-Americans that I know that drive either a sports car or a luxury car or anything like that get asked that question on a regular basis. I drive a, a Jeep Grand Cherokee because I don't, I don't get asked that question. <laughs> it's like, but I know uh, many of my friends uh, and others that I know they get asked that question on a regular basis. And I would ask another question. Uh, how many times when you were pulled over for, for speeding, did they approach with guns drawn? Zero. Right. That happens on a regular, you know? And so those are real experiences. And not only that, friends who I know who live in certain neighborhoods, whether it's a you know, suburb or a majority white neighborhood, get pulled over on their way home on a regular basis and questioned about where are you going? You know, and, and asked to, you know, ask questions about their idea. Do you really live here? Those kind of things. And so it's almost like there's this, have, this way in which you have to justify. I have a right to live where I live and I have a right to drive what I drive. And almost is and, and implicit in the question is surely this can't be your car. Surely you can't live here. Right. If I didn't live in Chicago, I would probably be nervous to drive a car like yours, you know, because of that reason. And then to be speeding on top of it, you know, that's really, you know, because then then the assumption would be, oh, you stole it and you're trying to get away. Uh, So those are very real things. So I think this conversation about race and racism in America, uh, no, they're not burning crosses on lawns every day like they were in the 40s and 50s. And there are some things that are different, but we got a whole lot of reckoning to do. In, in the Antelope Valley of California, in it was either late June or early July of 2019. It's 2019 or 2020. Mm. A young black man was found hanging in a tree outside of City Hall. Mm. I mean, that, wow. that happened very recently. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, the incredible thing is the cops come out and say, oh, it was suicide. Suicide, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? And let me just say this. And let me, let me just say this. Uh, I'm not saying black folk don't commit suicide because we do. I mean, I've 
known those who did. It's very, it's, it's, I've never heard of an instance of a black person doing that in public. And who hangs himself at city hall? And there have been, there have been several instances In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, you know, there have been several instances like that where a black body has been found hanging in a public place and, oh, well, it must be suicide. No, it was a lynching. And that makes some people uncomfortable, but it is what it is, you know? Uh, and so I think that we have to, again, that goes back to this whole justification, right? And there's a lot of ways in which America, uh, I would say large portions of, of white America need to feel that this is no longer a problem, you know? And a lot of the conversation about racism right now is how do I get rid of any feelings of guilt or culpability that I might have. So this is an interesting one about guilt or culpability. So, you know, I did not grow up as a child in the U.S. I grew up in Canada. Mm-hmm. We don't have racism, black on white, that is similar in Canada. There, we're not perfect. We have our own problem. When I was growing up, it was French mm-hmm. against the English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the level of hatred was extraordinary. So I understand growing up with that around. But the the sort of, I, I don't experience it. So I don't have any, you know, you hear this expression, white guilt. Mm-hmm. I don't feel guilty. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not a perfect mm-hmm. person. I've made mistakes in my life. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't do anything to black people. And so I don't feel guilt about that. What I do feel, however, is, hey, the fact that this still goes on is not okay with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I feel embarrassed about is I've had black and brown friends my entire life. People I call brother and sister. Mm-hmm. And I knew we weren't perfect far from it in the United States. But until George Floyd, I had no idea how deep it was. Mm-hmm. And the depth of conversations that I've been privileged to have since that horrible murder um, have been very illuminating. Mm-hmm. And so I feel the guilt, if you want to call it that, that I feel is that I wasn't paying anywhere near enough attention and I'm trying to now. And I also think the black and brown friends in my life, since George Floyd, the gift that his murder gave us was an opening to talk in a way that we haven't. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm grateful for that. I guess my big question in all of this is what, what does God teach us about racism? You know, um, there's a scripture that asks the question, what does the Lord require of us? And it's to love justice, to act mercifully, and to walk humbly with our God. Can you say that again, Pastor, nice and slow for some of us who are not that smart? Sure. <laughs> you know, the scripture says that what does the Lord require of us? To love justice, to act with mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. It also says in the Psalms that righteousness and justice is the foundation of God's throne. Um, I believe that the heart of God is extended toward oppressed people. Not that God um, hates those who are not oppressed, but throughout the scriptures, um, the children of Israel who had a covenant with God went through oppression, right? Went through an experience of slavery went through attacks, uh, I believe that God has a special place in his heart for people who experience oppression. Uh, 
And I believe that what God's heart for racism or what God would say about racism is not. And I think that the other flip side of this is, you know, because there's a scripture in Galatians that said there's no longer Jew nor Greek bond or free. They were all one in Christ. And some people take that to say, well, you know, I don't see color. You know, we, we just got to be colorblind. That's not it either. Uh, and the reason I don't believe in a colorblind God or a colorblind society, God created us different, right? Everything in creation has variety. Flowers are different. What makes flowers beautiful and unique? You know, roses are here and you got tulips, right? So you walk outside in the fall when, 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 when the leaves are beginning to turn on the trees and that's just beauty, right? It's diversity. Uh, but you know, if everyone looked the same, and talk the same, the world would be a boring place. Part of the spice of life is the diversity of the world that, you know, we are all different in that way. And so I don't believe in this colorblind. And I heard people say things like, well, I don't see color. Well, for the most part, and I, I just say this, I've only heard white people say that. I've never heard a black person say, I don't see color. <laughs> I'm just being honest, right? <laughs> I have, I've never heard a black person. I, the only people who I've heard that say that I, that I don't see color are, are, are white folk. And, uh, you know, and I always ask them the question and I said, well, what do you see? Right? Well, I just see people. And, and, and here's the way I debunk that. Everything that we call normal is based on culture. We are raised in the context of culture, right? So, what you experience as a white male growing up in Canada, there's certain cultural norms that you were acclimated to, right? If you had been raised as a Hispanic male in Southern California or a black male in Atlanta, Georgia, what you would know as culture, the kind of food you eat, right? The, um, the way you talk, the places you went to school, all of those things would be different. That, and those are all things that have shaped your worldview, right? And so it's not that we are stri that we're trying to be colorblind It's that we recognize that in the midst of our differences, we have to learn to love justice, that we have to learn to act with mercy. And I think this goes back to what you mentioned about, this, about, you know, getting pulled over by the police and things like that. I'm reminded that I'm not in a colorblind world all the time, you know, because, you know, my white friends don't feel the same tension in their neck that I feel if the police get behind me. And it's not because my plates are expired or because I was speeding or because my taillight is out. And if you talk to probably any black man or women even, um, but especially black men, they can relate to that feeling. You know, ask your black male friend, how does it feel if the police get behind you and drive behind you for more than a couple seconds? It's a tension that's there. It's, a, it's an anxiety that is there. And so this whole thing of color, man, so I, I believe the heart of God is that we would actively work toward justice, that we would actively work to really address these systems. Because the reality, and I, I mentioned earlier that race is a social construct and our iteration of race in America is uniquely American. And the reason I mentioned that is because let's look at this in America, right? So I mentioned the history of the, the First Nations people that were here, the history of chattel slavery. America, for up until about 100 years ago, had a fluid conversation about what it means to be white in America. So meaning that, you know, the whole notion of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant was initially the group that was admitted into this club of white privilege, right? Then you had groups like the Irish 
you had groups like Italians who at one point in, in American history were not part of that club, right? They weren't. So, but then what happened over time? Gradually, they were admitted into this white club. And, and so now you have this blanket group of white and colored or, you know, so that's why I say you, America's definition of racism is uniquely American. And a lot of it was based on who is considered white, who gets the privileges of protection from, of this system and who is considered outside of that. Uh, the other thing about American history is that up until 50 years ago, in many parts of the country, African-Americans were only considered three-fifths human. Even the Constitution. You know, so people, you know, a lot of people love to say, we well, you know, the founding fathers in the Constitution. <laughs> if you weren't human, what were you supposed to be, alien? <laughs> you were three-fifths, right? You were, you were property, which is what it was, right? Because slaves were deemed as property and, and accounted in the same way as animals. And so this whole notion that a, that, uh, that a slave counts as, as three-fifths of a person, that's a direct uh, indictment upon my humanity. And so when we go back through this whole thing of America's iteration of racism, we got to reconcile all these things. And so I believe that, you know, because God is a God of justice, I believe that I believe that God is in this day of reckoning. And, um, you know, one of the things in the scriptures, there was a, a man that Jesus had talked to and he, he said, I want to be right. And he said, anyone who I have wronged, I'll restore. Right. And I'll repay it and make amends. And, and there's a lot of things that America as a whole has not been prepared to make amends for. And I know that, that the whole subject of reparations has been controversial. I'm not making an argument about that in terms of how that happens and everything, but I think there has not been a way in which this country has been prepared to make amends because we still, we're still struggling to even tell the truth about what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we can't even get to the conversation of how to make things right. Because we're still struggling to, struggling to tell the truth. Would, do you think reparations would make any kind of a difference? I do believe it would make a difference. I think the question becomes how reparations happen. Here's the challenge that we have right now with this nation. A lot of people, the, the educational systems in this country, the, the business systems in this country have already been set. We saw this with the stimulus packages that came out, right? And I'm not against people being wealthy. but the wealthiest 0.1% saw their wealth increase exponentially, even over the course of a pandemic, because you have consumers and you have those who benefit from the consumption. <laughs> and so I think that if we're talking about reparations only in the sense of, okay, we'll give you so many thousands of dollars here and there, I don't think that will make things right. Now, if we're talking about reparations in a diversified sense of land allocation, you know, and things like that and, and um, real estate and property where it's more diversified, then I think that has the potential to make an impact. You know, one of the things that is reality now, even uh, black farmers own only one tenth of the, the land that they had 100 years ago. My, as I said, my father's family's from uh, southern, my father's from southern Georgia. And so. um you know, my, my grandparents were sharecroppers. My father grew up picking cotton as a little boy. And even a lot of the people who I know there, um, many of them don't farm anymore. And so when you look at the land ownership and things like that, right, nothing is more of a basic human desire than to own a piece of property, a piece of land, because this is something that says, this is mine, right? Um, and also uh, land and property and real estate ownership 
is a building block of wealth creation. You know, one of the great ways that wealth is passed down from generation to generation is you leave your children a house, you leave them a piece of property or something like that, because it's something that's going to outlive you. And the other thing is land is there. It's, it's not going anywhere. It's not moving. Mark Twain famously said, buy land, they're not making any more of it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the, it's the truth, right? You know? So I think if we're talking about reparations and it's kind of a more diversified thing of that, um, but if we're talking about, okay, well, if it's like a glorified stimulus package, I don't think that's going to work. So reparations should be s- systemic, mm-hmm. should be about breaking the inequalities mm-hmm. and delivering economic justice and equal opportunity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the things is Abraham Lincoln, uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, there was this notion of 40 acres and a mule. That never happened because he was assassinated before he could implement it. And the person who succeeded him as president was an avowed racist, Andrew Johnson. And under President Johnson, a lot of the things that Abraham Lincoln had planned or approved were done away with, right? And it wasn't until when Ulysses Grant became president that you have the period of reconstruction um, that things began to turn. But people people talk about reconstruction as if it was this long period. Reconstruction really only lasted maybe 12 years. And then there was the period of post-reconstruction, where all the progress that was made during Reconstruction was quickly done away with, including those African Americans who were elected into public office. Anyone who wants to study more about that, you should read the life stories of people like Hiram Revels uh, and others who who were who uh, you know J.P. Pinchback of Louisiana and so others who became elected officials and even were elected to the Senate uh, during the period of Reconstruction. Uh, and even the and these are people who were by the standards of the day considered wealthy African Americans. Uh, because, you know, because they had accumulated land and things, but experienced racism and had a lot of those things taken from them. So I'm so curious as to the seeds of racism. And I have my own theories, of course, but I'm curious, where do you think racism comes from? Um, I think the American iteration of racism comes from the need to always have a group that's on the bottom. For the American construct, and some would call it the American experiment, because on some levels, America was an experiment. For it to work, you needed a group of people that could be on the bottom rung. The economic engines that built America benefited immensely from slavery. And so the racism, I believe, evolved from the 1600s through the 1800s, and by the 1800s, it was codified, and it had become a full-blown system. So I think the seeds of it were, were developed, one, by economic interest, right? The pillaging of Africa over the 200 years, even the Berlin Council, where the, where the continent of Africa, uh, which even prior to that time was not known as Africa, uh, was divided by European powers. Where and one of, and people talk about the horrors and I don't diminish any of the genocides that have happened, but the, actually the worst genocide that happened was um, in Central Africa, in the Congo, under King Leopold, where hundreds of thousands of Congolese were were dis- were killed, were just destroyed, murdered, um, and actually I think it was probably to some to a tune of a couple of million. There were several million Congolese 
that were killed. And so the pillaging of Africa, the raping of the resources, uh, and then you transfer that over to the to America, to the Americas rather, not just not just the United States, but North America, Central America, South America. Uh, the largest number of slaves actually went to South America and Brazil. Uh, and so Ameri- so th- this American experiment of, of racism needed a group of people to one have on the bottom, but to keep the group on the bottom, you need to make the group somehow a villain, right? And so, so the so black slaves were an entity that had to be controlled and dehumanized, right? and dehumanized, and, and and feared and controlled. And so, how do you do that? You create fear of them, right? So the fear you create fear, and you create this kind of patriarchal perception of them like okay you they're they're feared of savages but yet because they're subhuman their intelligence is that of animals so we just need to we need to kind of you know be responsible we need to tell them what to do and not give them too many responsibilities uh and so what happened during that period is uh the, the black man was 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 painted as the savage right when you look through history uh, a lot of the race riots and things started even the bombing of Tulsa. You no, know, this year we we have the hundredth uh, anniversary of the bombing of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It started because a young white woman in an elevator told a lie that a black businessman, who was one of the most respected men there, that he tried to accost her in an elevator. And, and we, you can, you can go back to Emmett Till, and, and you can go back through many instances where the, the perception, okay, the black man as the aggressor, the savage that. D.W. Griffin's book, which turned into a movie, The Birth of a Nation, which painted this image of black men as these savages that are coming to rape the white women, right? And that stoked the fear of white men that says, oh, we have to protect the white women from these savages. And so that became the impetus of lynchings. A lot of the lynchings came about because of that, right? You start a lynching by saying, oh, we heard the white, that, that black man over there was going to rape a white woman or tried to rape a white woman or even threatened to rape a white woman. Now he's killed and he's lynched and that there's this aggression and this animus that is going toward not just him, but any other black man that looks like him. Or That's where some of the profiling came from. Yeah, of course, we, we saw this uh, on the Internet and on our TVs when not that long ago, there was that gal who worked for one of the major uh, I think she worked for an iBank or big investment company in New York and she was in Central Park and there was mm-hmm. a, and she's white and there was a black guy there bird watching. Remember this one? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she yeah, started getting yeah. all upset about him because he told her not to have mm-hmm. the dog. She was, had her dog and he said, hey, don't have mm-hmm. the dog in the estuary where the birds are. And yeah. she decided to call the cops. And of course she ended up losing yeah. her job <laughs> and so forth and so on. But you just, we see, we can see these things today, right? It's George Floyd. Mm-hmm. We see it. It's undeniable. Well, even in that case in Central Park, when you, when he recorded her, the way in which she turned the voice, her, the, the inflection of her voice, when the, when the, um, she went from threatening him to, oh my God, right? Even the tone in her voice changed because she knew if I act scared and say it's a black man, people are going to come. The police are going to run to my rescue because as long as America has been here, there has been this fear of black men brutalizing white women. Yes. So here's what I wonder about. There's sort of two vectors on this. Mm-hmm. Number one is from an intelligence perspective, racism is I want to be respectful in front of you as a pastor. I'll just say effing dumb. Mm-hmm. 
right? And, and here's here's how I start with this one. Mm-hmm. How much choice did you have over who your parents are? No. How much choice did you have about where you were born? No. And neither did I. Mm-hmm. And so people who look like me, who are racist against people who look like you, it's like you do understand the thing that you are racist about, you had nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. It was just luck of the draw. Mm-hmm. And so on its face, you have to be an idiot mm-hmm. because I had no choice as to who my parents were, as did you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to me, it sort of starts there. If you're racist based on something that you had, you know, I can be judgmental about, you know, I consider myself a hardworking guy. I grew up with a single mm-hmm. mom. Nobody gave me anything. And I had to find my place in the world, ultimately make my place in the world and make myself a success. So on that dynamic, I could look at people who maybe I would judge as being lazy. I have Mm -hmm. a judgment about a lot of people who don't take advantage of the opportunity given to them by the United States as an immigrant to this country. Mm -hmm. I find it shocking that more people don't understand the opportunity that is our country. And mm-hmm. I can be very judgmental about that. And you could argue that borders on, if you will, racism against lazy people <laughs> in that, in that sense. Right. right? And uh-huh. it angers me mm-hmm. and it makes me want to tell them off and, and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. But that is a judgment I make based on someone's behavior. I, mm-hmm. You know, I'm probably overly judgmental, but it's got nothing to do with who they were born to or where they were born or the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing that makes me crazy is in order to be racist, you have to be an effing moron mm-hmm. because the reason you're racist has got nothing to do with anything that you chose about yourself or mm-hmm. the people who you hate had chose about themselves. Well, see, here, here, here's what was in a sense clever about the way racism evolved and morphed in America. What you do is you take those despisable characteristics and you attribute them to one group of people. So you label black people as unintelligent, dumb, lazy, inordinately lustful, savages, you know, with this ravenous sexual appetite that, you know, this image of the black man is this, you know, this out of control buck that wants to just screw any woman within reach, you know, this image of black women as this mammy and all of these things. And you attribute these things to a group of people, right? And so now that you label this group of people with all of these attributes, the assumption is if I see you, oh, you must be lazy. Oh, you must be dishonest. Oh, you must be this. And so now I have already not only labeled you, but I've labeled everyone that looks like you with these characteristics, right? That's how it happened. It's amazing that when you think back to slaves being called lazy, you have people who work beyond sunup to sundown, sundown with no compensation, no breaks. I mean, women have babies and are right back out in the field, but you have the nerve to call them lazy. Like that is the first, I mean, my grandmother, uh, as I said, my grandparents were sharecroppers. I mean, even in their day, she picked over 200 pounds of cotton a day. And I don't know if you've ever been in a cotton field or seen, you know, a cotton bud. That's a lot to pick. 200 pounds worth. I've never picked cotton, but I've picked a lot of peaches and uh, a lot of stone <laughs> fruit. My uh, wife's uh-huh. family, um, uh, her dad is 90 years old, Italian, mm-hmm. and he runs the last commercial orchard in San Jose, California. 
Oh, wow. Started by his father in 1945, and mm. we now have six generations that work this land. Mm. Uh, wow. So I don't know anything about cotton, but I sure know what it's like to have a small family ranch with uh, 600 fruit trees on it. And I'll tell you, right. we're all very busy all the time. As a matter of fact, just before Absolutely. we got on, Pastor, my <laughs> wife was saying, now, don't forget, we're going over there on Saturday and Papa needs us to blah, 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 blah. And so if there's uh-huh, a fa- uh-huh. if, if the family's in the farming business, everybody's in the farming business <laughs> and picking working. a couple hundred pounds, anything is a lot of work. Uh-huh. Exactly. And so, you know, this notion of laziness, right? It's like, okay, you have these kind of things. Um, a lot of the ingenuity that came about. Um, and, and one of the amazing things, even in my adult life, a lot, of, I realized how many inventions were created by black people in America, even those during slavery. Uh, but a lot of times it was out of necessity. So this notion of, you know, lower intelligence. And during the 1800s, there was a series of studies that were done to, that were, you know, fabricated studies rather to try to justify or try to make this argument that black people had lower IQs or smaller brains or things like that. And it, it, it so it's, it's been supported and upheld by, by these other sources, right? But it's all a lie. And so on this, this is the other sort of vector that I get into with racism uh, and maybe this is an oversimplification, but I, I really am ho- hoping for your reaction. At a high level, there are two kinds of people. There are those that believe in scarcity, mm-hmm. and there are those that believe in abundance. And unfortunately, Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, taught us that it's about supply and demand. And so if you take, you take a, a commodity, take you know my favorite example, bananas. Mm-hmm. Well. There's some people, what Adam Smith teaches us is, well, there's so many bananas in the world and we fight over the bananas Mm -hmm. and the person with the most bananas wins. And there's there's only a certain amount of bananas. And so there's a scarcity mindset that says there's only a certain amount of something. And that means it can only be divvied up in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And therefore, as human beings, we compete over scarce resources Mm -hmm. in the scarcity mindset. It requires a dominance hierarchy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The flip side is when you start to look at the evolution of humanity, you begin to realize that the legendary things that happen throughout history are when human beings collaborate and they create abundance. So rather than fighting over the bananas, they say, hey, um, what if we planted some more banana trees together? Mm-hmm. And what if we mm-hmm. planted some nuts? And I don't know, I, I heard tomatoes are wonderful. And, 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 and yeah. you know, as, as somebody that is now part of a farming family, you can literally see what happens when a group of people come together to work on, in this example, mm-hmm. a crop or a set of crops, you do create more abundance. The, mm-hmm. the earth provides, right? If we pay attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've grown up, Pastor, in an uh, entrepreneurial technology world. Mm-hmm. And my entrepreneurial heroes are the ones that have created new things, that created new possibilities, that mm-hmm. created abundance, both economic and otherwise. And so I, I think when you, look at it, when you look at life through a scarcity mindset, we've got to fight, we've got to compete, we've got to dominate. When you look at life through an abundance mindset that says that instead of when we dominate each other, 
we collaborate with each other. And I see mm. it in my own family yeah. around harvesting fruit trees. Mm-hmm. We can make magic happen. And so I, mm. I just, sometimes I feel like a naive idiot pastor, but I guess my point in all of this is why is it so hard for human beings to realize when we all do well, we all do well. Greed and insecurity. You know, this notion of trickle-down economics was, in theory, okay, well, you know, if if we create more, there's a notion of a high tide lifts all ships. It's not true in America. Because what happens is, once my ship gets lifted, I close the dam so no more water comes in. So yours doesn't get lifted. And it's greed because I don't want you to have what I have. Right. But why? That's the part I don't get. I understand greed from the perspective of I want to better myself. I want to improve my standing. I want to be able to provide for my family. I want an external validation of my value, of my importance. I understand those things. And in that context, you know, greed isn't bad greed. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a desire to provide. It's a desire to grow. It's a desire to contribute. And it's a desire to be valued. What I don't understand is the hoarding part of greedy. And the other part I don't understand is why you being successful makes me think I'm going to be less successful. Well, when the greed is fueled by racism, that's where it comes in. You know, just like going back to the, you know, you mentioned the car, you're getting stopped with your car, right? And your black friends get a different set of questions than you. And and really implicit in those questions is you don't have the right to have something that's as nice as this white man has. Right. So. You don't have the right to live in a neighborhood that this white man lives in. So when it's not just greed in the sense of I want more, I want more. Because uh, there's a part of human nature that is just wired to want more. It is greed mixed with a kind of racism and a kind of fear. Because part of this fear, it goes back to slavery, right? If we take our necks off the slaves, they might stand up and kill us. And that that goes back to some of these base instincts of human beings. That I have to keep the people beneath me under my foot. Because if I let my foot off of them, they may do me harm. The interesting thing about that mindset to me is, again, being a student of history, mm-hmm. that's 100% not true. Right? And so mm-hmm. I, I put mm-hmm. my capitalist hat on mm-hmm. and, and say, well, when people, so two-thirds of the U.S. economy is are consumers. So it's, mm-hmm. it's driven by consumer purchasing. And you would think as a capitalist, you'd say, well, the better off the American consumer is, the better off we're going to be as a capitalist. And so we want strong American consumers, right? And so if you just look at it from a purely capitalist point of view, you know, we had Terry Williams on the podcast a while ago. She's um, her and her husband started what's now called One United 
bank. And they're one of the mm-hmm. last, you know, I think there's approximately 20 black banks left. And I, I do want mm-hmm. to talk to you about mm-hmm. justice deposits if we, if we still have sure. time. Yeah, definitely. But, yes. uh, and, and meeting her was an absolute joy. And one of the things that sort of she helped me understand, and I sort of knew it intellectually, but of course, when you really get into it with somebody, you get it on a deeper level, is that many of their customers and the customers of a lot of black banks are um, not, well, I don't know if it's many, but some percentage, right, are, are, are people who were either underbanked, underserved, and in some cases were not banked at all. Mm-hmm. Well, when people who are underbanked or not banked begin to use the services of a bank, good things start to happen economically. Mm-hmm. Right, because as 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 is easy to forget, every loan is a dream, mm-hmm. and so from a purely capitalist point of view, if you can take a subset of the market that is underutilized as an asset and empower them to become an asset, to become good consumers. Well, guess what? What are they going to do? More people are going to go to school. Okay. More people are going to get better educated. Okay. More people mm-hmm. are going to have more mm-hmm. consumer power. Okay, great. More people are going to mm-hmm. become entrepreneurs. Okay, great. More people are going to be able to afford houses. Okay, great. Then they're going to want a new car. Okay, great. Then they're going to need a fridge and a stove and a, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and mm-hmm. maybe they're going to have children and maybe those children, et cetera, et cetera. And so mm-hmm. from a purely economic, selfish point of view, uh, more healthy consumers is good for our economy, and yet black people have been effed over by the financial system mm-hmm. in our country kind of forever, best I can tell. And so I mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. I don't understand, Pastor, when the evidence, the economic evidence in this case is clear, mm-hmm. yet the racism trumps the economic reality. Mm-hmm. We would rather be less well off and have less customers Mm-hmm. Because we're so racist. This was the thing that mm-hmm. I found so shocking in my discussion with Terry. And so I'm curious your reaction to that. So, again, it, 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 it's the fact, you know. Now, there are some who start to realize the benefit of that. So I think one of, going back to the 60s, you know, I often refer to the civil rights movement in that period. Going back to the 60s, what really made the Birmingham, uh, the, the movement and the Montgomery bus boycott, which was, you know, in some sense, the beginning, a a catalytic moment for the beginning of the modern civil rights movement, the bus company was crippled. I mean, two thirds of their revenue was from African-American riders. So they began to put pressure on the political officials in Montgomery to end the boycott. The political officials were so resentful and hateful, they didn't want to do it. So there became this stalemate and standoff that ended up causing the boycott to last a year. Um, the sit-ins at the lunch counters, right? All of these other events that happened around economic engines and businesses. Uh, well, at a certain point, some of the businesses began to think, well, you know, black dollars and white dollars are both green. So if we sell a sandwich to a black person, you know, um, we don't like them, but they're giving us money. We might think black is bad, but we think green is good. Yes, right. So what it what it did was it kind of gave rise to some other capitalists who were more opportunistic. They may still have been racist, but they were equally opportunistic. And so they said, "Well, you know, I can hate them 
and private. And so what happened is they said, well, as long as I don't have to live with them, I'll sell to them and take their money. I don't want them to live around me, which that's one of the reasons that real estate and housing segregation became one of the major and last frontiers. And to this day is one of probably the biggest frontiers of racism and segregation. Uh, Because, you know, for a lot of people, I don't mind uh, selling you a product because you're giving me money. But if you live near me, that's different. So I think that, uh, you know, for some people, it's been this whole thing of uh, I'm I'm willing to cut my nose to spite my face. But so I hate you so much, even if it means me losing money, (laughs) you know, I'm going to still stand by my hatred. That's the shocking one for me, Pastor. Yes. Absolutely. That's a shocking mm-hmm. one, you know, that you would think people would love the green more than they hate the black. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, honestly, going back to the question you asked earlier about reparations, I, and I, that's why that's why I said one of the reasons I don't think that reparations, if it's only in the form of a monetary thing like a stimulus package, it will, it will not be helpful because black entrepreneurs and business owners are disproportionately underrepresented in different sectors of the economy. So even if black Americans were given uh, stimulus money, the places where they would have opportunity to spend it would disproportionately go back to white businesses. And so one of, one of the unintended consequences of uh, desegregation was that prior to, to 1965, there were more black hotels, there were more black cab companies, there were more black restaurants, although in places like Chicago here, we're seeing kind of a, re- a renaissance and a resurgence of black restaurateurs, which I'm happy to see. Um, you know, there's a number of new restaurants that have popped up on the south side of the city, even in the last two years, even since the pandemic. And I love to see it. Um, but you know, there were more hotels. There were, um, as I said, cat companies, um, uh, event concert venues and things like that, because they could not, uh, you know, watching uh, the Aretha Franklin documentary and other documentaries, you know, if you're reminded of these celebrities who, even though, white people would come to see them perform. They couldn't stay in the hotel. Right. Um, and so they're on the road. Aretha Franklin which, can know, stay in my house if she wants. <laughs> right. right. You know, anytime like, they, we'll cook her whatever hey, she wants, <laughs> you know, right. But you know, that generation paid such a dear price, you know, for being trailblazers in that way. Um, James Brown and many of them who were entertainers in the fifties, sixties, even into the seventies. So, <laughs> Like I said, the unintended consequence was a lot of these black businesses who served the black community out of necessity because we could not stay in, you know, in the white hotels. We could not, you know, eat in white restaurants. So some of them began to close because now if black folk have the opportunity to stay wherever they want, they're moving around more. But white people are not coming to patronize a black hotel. I see. So the black folk were able to patronize a white hotel, but white folk were not coming up patronize a black hotel. So they ended up closing. And so, but so what happened that created another economic vacuum, which between the 1960s and the 1980s created what we see as these current, the current iteration that we live with now of these deep pockets of poverty in inner cities. Because now what happened was the blacks who black people who were professional, who were middle class, they had options in terms of where they live. And so now you see the the increase in black people living in suburbs or neighborhoods that were previously predominantly white. And what it did was it exacerbated the level of poverty in certain communities, uh, and particularly 
inner cities. Right. Because, because people, as their standing improved, moved out of those places. Exactly. Yeah. And those that were the only people, only people who were left were those who did not have as many options, who were less educated and, you know, who had less resources in that sense. Yes. Uh, and so there's been this now this acknowledgement that says if we're going to leave, we got to be careful about what we leave behind. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, Pastor, I could talk to you for literally a, a full 24 <laughs> hours straight, but I, I know you have a flock to tend to. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Um, justice deposits. Oh, yes, of um, course. How could I forget? So um, yeah. that's how you and I, of course, met. So tell me about your take on justice deposits. So my take, you know, this came about, you know, the, the catalyst was a conversation that myself and Pastor Dave Ferguson had. Uh, about racism. And I, you know, I commend him because, you know, even as a white pastor, he said, you know, our church is really wrestling with the the issue of racism and how we approach this conversation. You know, they're a predominantly white suburban church and said, you know, even though this is our context, how, how do we approach this conversation there? We've been having some conversations about it. He sat down and did an interview with me. And so we, after that interview, just kind of talked through some things around what he and others could do to really make a contribution to what this country is wrestling with. And then Eddie Yoon came into the conversation, brilliant thinker, uh, Asian brother. Um, and he introduced us to you. And so this, this notion of justice deposits came about with, you know, of course, with the banking that the history uh, of African-Americans is, is intrinsically tied to economic injustices. It is assessed that the average net worth of a black family right now is less than a 10th of the net worth of the average white family. And by the year 2050, the average net worth of black families is expected to hit zero uh, in terms of overall average net worth. It's going in the wrong direction. The big, big it's time. going in the wrong direction. direction. Mm-hmm. And actually the rate of home ownership, right, as of 2020, as of last year, was a tenth of a percent lower than the rate of black home ownership was in 1965. You know, so the, the, the notion was, okay, you know, uh, we, the, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, all of this legislation passes. Now black people can buy homes and move into the middle class. Well, the rate of home ownership is virtually unchanged and it's actually a tenth of a percent lower than it was 55 years ago. Well, a lot of these, the history goes back to banking. And you know, I'm sure we've talked about uh, you know, the, free, the history of the Freedmen's Bank and the history of banking in America, segregation practices uh, of loan and lending. And, and when you look at the two, two, two of the major functions of banks are home loans and small business loans. And if you're going to address economic justice, economic issues in America, you got to look at real estate, home ownership, and you got to look at business creation. One of the things that, that, that is critical is creating a new generation of homeowners because that's how wealth is. That's one of the primary ways that wealth is passed down. Right. And then you have business ownership. So, you know, we talk about how two thirds of America are consumers. Well, one of the ways that you create people who are not consumers is by individuals starting businesses. But if you don't have the capital, the way you start a business is you get a business loan. Well, if you, when you look at the lending practices of majority white banks, uh, 1% of home loans go to black borrowers. Disgusting. Absolutely. Whereas with black banks, 67% of home loans go to black borrowers. And so the way justice deposits was born was that, well, 
a way to improve the standing of African-American families and individuals and businesses is to, is to help capitalize Black-owned banks and improve their standing to, if so, because if they have more assets to lend, then because they already lend to Black families and Black communities, that improves the standing of the community in that way. So that's where Justice Deposits was born. And then we look, you know, of course, look at the history of banking and the discriminatory practices, but the, and the role of black banks. But when you look at where black banks stand now, uh, I know One United is like the biggest right now. And I can't remember what their current uh, level is. This has changed since last year. But prior to the pandemic, the largest black owned bank in the country, I think, had somewhere around 400 million in assets. When you compare that with, you know, the largest banks in the country, it is nowhere near, it's less than a tenth. Of, you know, probably maybe 1% of their assets and their valuation. And that's the largest, right? And so actually, if you compare probably the 20 or so, maybe, maybe 20, 20 to 27, somewhere around that black banks in the country, uh, they barely have over a billion dollars in assets collectively. Whereas numerous majority white banks have that and more, just one bank, right? And so uh, this is where the whole heart and the mindset of Justice Deposits came in, encouraging people to open up an account. You're going to bank somewhere, right? So we started with churches and other nonprofits and encouraging uh, corporations. Netflix, you know, we saw last year, uh, was one of the leaders in this, where they took 2% of their liquid assets and, and uh, opened up an account with Black-owned banks. And other co corporations have begun to do similar things. And so this is where we're at. We're just trying to encourage this initiative for uh, the recapitalizing, well, I don't say recapitalize, decapitalizing of Black-owned banks, because recapitalize implies that they actually had capital before they never did, <laughs> you know? So we want to make sure that we are capitalizing Black-owned banks so that the Black communities can benefit from this. Well, and of course, the beauty of justice deposits is this is not charity, right? When right. you move some of your money to a Black-owned bank, mm -hmm. you're still getting banking services like you would at Absolutely. Pick your, you know, mm -hmm. evil, uh, evil white bank. Wells Fargo comes to mind. <laughs> and uh, I, why they're still uh -huh. in business, I don't know. They're run by Satan, but I digress. Listen, that's. <laughs> um, and of course, we're. But you know what? You, you mentioned a point there, right? Going Even going back to the um, the housing collapse in 08, they were one of the banks that was penalized for their predatory lending practices that disproportionately affected black homeowners. And no so one went to jail. Loans. And no one went to They've jail. They've been found guilty of, of yes. screwing black people over on loans. They've been found yes. guilty of screwing their customers over by opening those accounts to get their Have commission. They've been found guilty of all sorts of horrible, mm -hmm. racist things. And not mm -hmm. one CEO of Wells Fargo has gone to jail. Mm -hmm. No, nope, they're doing fine. I want you to know my, my objective is to put them out of business. They are a racist bank. Uh, listen, and they have a long history. Yes, they do. You know, when you go back to look at the history of Wells Fargo Bank, their history goes back to slavery. So, yeah. And so the beauty, of course, of Justice Deposits uh, mm -hmm. is when I open my account, as I did at One United, uh, mm -hmm. I get all the services of a, of a... I have an account with One United as well. Of mm -hmm. a world-class bank. Um, yeah. The fact that I fell in love with Terry makes it a little extra nice. Um, I'm sure, yeah. And... So, so we get all the same value, all the same services, all the same interest rates, all the same things that mm -hmm. you would get at a, mm -hmm. let's call it a traditional bank, or in the case of Wells Fargo, mm -hmm. an evil racist bank. 
(laughs) And so the the power, of course, of a justice deposit is uh, it's not a charitable thing when when you and I open Mm -hmm. our one United accounts. Right. Mm -hmm. And we have the benefit of knowing that we make that deposit deposits equal the ability Mm -hmm. to write loans. And so now we've helped Terry and her husband and their wonderful team to do what we hope to do, which is to make more loans and Mm -hmm. have more entrepreneurs and so forth. And so you and I share a deep commitment over the next 10 years. If we get a hundred million, a hundred billion moved, hundred billion, billion, did I? Yeah. Bill with a B uh, moved into black banks. We will forever change the economic trajectory of uh, black people in this country. Absolutely. That's the goal. That's the hope. That's the mindset. Uh, and I believe it's doable. You know, it, the thing is creating is creating and, and heightening awareness around it, uh, encouraging people. Uh, as you said, this is not, this is, this is, this is no risk in the sense that we're not asking you to give anyone something, right? We're not asking you to give a grant, uh, nothing wrong with that, but we're not asking that. This is a no risk thing, right? You're going to bank somewhere. Yes. One of the, the fun expressions that we were all bandering about as we were writing the article for HBR uh-huh. and stuff is the expression, yeah. where would Jesus bank? Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, where it makes a difference. And so it's simply being conscious about where you bank. So, yeah. What do you want from us? You know, what, do, what's your wish? for those of us in our country who care about unity, who care about mm-hmm. equality, who care about justice, who believe that the American dream is about freedom, and who believe the American dream is about agency, and that what mm-hmm. is required for America to work is everybody has an equal shot. Mm-hmm. And so for those of us who believe those things, what do you want from us? What I would want, and I'll speak to two groups of people, those of you like yourself who've already kind of developed a level of awareness and are saying, you know, how can I help to make this a more just society? Um, to you, I would say, continue to do the work, continue to lend your voice to it, continue to put your hand to the plow and continue to even confront those who perpetuate lies and perpetuate this notion uh, that as we talked about the whitewashing of American history, you know, continue to educate yourself about the history of the, the true history of the nation and educate others on the same and, 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 um, and continue to support things like justice deposits, continue to look for ways to partner um and, and support the work, continue to have conversations with the black friends, uh, you know, recognizing that, yes, we believe in these ideals of agency and, um, you know, fairness and all those things. And, um, but also recognizing that this notion of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is not always easy for people who don't have boots, you know, that, um, and I think of my father and my parents, you know, as an example, um, that, you know, he, he, he recognized, and my mother's still living and, you know, um, and I was blessed with great parents that worked hard, you know, um, but he, you know, my, my, my parents had to work a lot harder than their white counterparts because they were, they had 
other obstacles to jump through, right? And they did not, they did not, in a sense, complain about that, but they were aware of it. And I think also for those, you know, white folk who are more cynical or even racist and think that, you know, um, this have bought into this lie that black folk, you know, want everything given to us. No, there's some people who aren't looking for a handout, but a hand up. Um, that there's some people who really want opportunity, but they have further to reach to get opportunity. You know, for them, the walk to opportunity is a long journey. You know, it's not just, you know, it's not just right there at, at hand. And so I think that um, we need the voice of people like you because they'll listen to people like you before they will me. Say a little bit more about that, Pastor. Well, you know, when we talk, when we have conversations about racism, for white folk who try to defend systems of racism and injustice, they will hear another white person differently than they will hear me or another black or a black person. Because the assumption is, well, they're black, so they're going to say this. Or they're black, so they have to believe that. And this is not a political argument. This is not a liberal versus conservative, a Democrat versus Republican. I have a saying that the white wing and the left wing belong to the same bird. <laughs> um, so, you know, for me, this is not about uh, a political thing as much as it is a justice thing. And I, I said this to someone recently. I said, you know, to be honest, when I look at some cities, some of these cities have been led by both parties and the condition of them is the same. It's the system. It's not the party. And both parties belong to the same system. And so I think we have to take an examination of the system. I think one of the things that George Floyd's murder has done is made us take another look at what we call the justice system. Here it is. A man is murdered in broad daylight by a police officer who has a knee on his neck. He's on the ground handcuffed for nine minutes and it's videotaped, right? With 20 witnesses, videotaped. Yet we were still nervous that there might not be a conviction. Some of us were terrified. And some, right. But you, and someone commented uh, last week before the verdict came out, said that, you know, if that had been a dog under his knee, there would, there would never have even been a trial because it would have been a no brainer. And so the thought that a dog could get justice before a black man could, right? Uh, and this goes back to what I mentioned earlier about, you know, well, it was this, it had to be that he had to, you know, if someone had killed a dog, they wouldn't have questioned whether the dog had rabies. They wouldn't have questioned whether the dog came from a responsible owner, right? They wouldn't have questioned whether the dog had ever bit anyone in his life. But that same dignity is not extended to human beings that look like me. Because the assumption is, if you find yourself in a situation where something is being done to you, you did something to deserve it. Because it's an indictment against the humanity. And so for, for, for you and, and others in your situation, I would say, we need your voices. We need white folk who recognize that these systems have been intentionally established to continue to point out these systems. So that's what we need. 
Well, I could tell you I'm trying to be the best uh, advocate I know how to be. And the thing that is upsetting to me is, of course, I don't know what it's like to be a black man in America or anywhere else for that matter. But I do know what it's like to feel counted out. Mm-hmm. I do know what it's like to be uh, profiled. I do know what it's like to have to be shit on. Mm-hmm. And I do know what it's like to have a chip on your shoulder. Say, oh, yeah, I'll show you right yeah. to come back against it. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd say is. Somebody asked me this a while ago, Pastor, and it stopped me in my tracks. Look back on your life and ask yourself the following question. When at important moments in your life did society or some component of society that was not your family do something for you that really helped, whether it was a government program or some other thing? And the reality is many of us, certainly those of us who grew up of, let's call it uh, modest means, Mm -hmm. were helped by Mm -hmm. programs funded by governments or funded by, in some cases, in my case, corporations. Early on in my life, I was involved with an entrepreneur program that was funded by a major corporation in Canada that helped want to be entrepreneurs like myself. Mm -hmm. And so I I guess what I share with you, I share this with you because when you stop and realize it, most of us have been helped who have been successful, most of us have been helped in one way or another by, let's call it, quote unquote, the system, even if we didn't realize it, myself included. Mm-hmm. And when you begin to realize that, I, for, certainly for me, I was like, hmm, then to your point, the system matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it definitely matters. Absolutely. Is there anything else, Pastor? I think I uh, <laughs> covered it. <laughs> well, I would love to throw some uh, my arms around your big shoulders and give you a big hug. Uh, oh man, I appreciate it. Same here. Same here. Thank you for locking arms with us. Uh, in this. Your your smile is something I could look at for a very long time. <laughs> oh man, I appreciate it. You know, I, I'm just grateful to have have allies um, in this work. Well, I love everything about what you're doing. Thank you. And uh, please come back anytime. I would love to. I look forward to continuing to work with you, uh, work with you and our brothers in arms on justice deposits. Absolutely. And uh, you're welcome back here anytime. Well, I'd love to. And um, and when I get out to the West Coast, I, uh, we definitely got to connect. You have a place <laughs> to stay. A couple of pastor friends out there uh, in your neck of the woods. Well, so. I'd love to get together with a group of pastors and have a good long conversation over whatever pastors like to drink over a good long conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe you can bless some scotch for me. <laughs> Sure. (laughs) God bless you, Pastor. I bless you, Chris. Thank you for having me. Well, there he is, the legendary Pastor Quentin Mumphrey. And uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, why not share it with somebody you love or care about right now? Uh, Also, Pastor Quentin is the founder and senior pastor of New Hope Covenant Church. And uh, that's how you can find them on the Internet. They're on the south side of Chicago. And uh, to let you know, on our next episode, we've got a, a rocking one for you. Dr. Mike Wade, who is the author of a fantastic new book called Alien Thinking. And we're going to talk about how to think differently to produce legendary uh, breakthroughs. That's on the next episode. Now, if you're a business owner, 
it's possible you could be making running and growing your business harder than uh, it needs to be. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite from Oracle. Stop paying for multiple systems that uh, don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch that spreadsheet kung fu and all that old software you've outgrown. Now's the time for NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control over your financials, HR, e-commerce, multi-channel commerce, and much more. Everything you need in one place instantaneously, whether you're doing a million dollars a year or hundreds of millions in revenue. Visit netsuite.com different and learn how you can save time and money with NetSuite today. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Thousands of IT, security, and business professionals rely on Splunk to bring together disparate data, data in motion, data at rest, structured data, and unstructured data. And because Splunk works at the data level, Splunk is a legendary platform for security, protecting your actual data. Get empowered to bring data to everything today at splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Pastor Quentin. Thank you so much, Pastor. Uh, remember, you can check him out on the internet at New Hope Covenant Church Chicago.org. Uh, remember to make a justice deposits today. It's real simple. Put some of your money in a black owned and black run bank because every deposit in a black bank gets converted into a loan and every loan is a dream coming true. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out on the internet today. And my friends at the Drop-In Coalition are making a difference for underserved kids here in the Santa Cruz area, teaching them the power of science, technology, engineering, art, and math and surfing in a series of field trip experiences. Check out the dropincoalition.org. My friends at bottleneck.online are here to help scale you. They are the leaders in a dedicated distant assistance. They've been physically distancing long before that was even a thing. Check out bottleneck.online and learn how to scale you. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. And don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. Now, we need to warn you that uh, the creators of today's podcast may have been consuming libations, and all podcasts do contain nuts. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Please uh, share it with everybody you love. Please, before acting on anything you heard today, consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, mother, bartender, and of course, your pastor. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, the legendary Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Don't forget that Dr. King was right listen to muddy waters drink malibu milk thank you candy dandy i love you mom and dad and hey colin this oddcast really ties the room together doesn't it today our deepest apologies go to david duke sorry dave we just ran out of time for you that's it my friends please stay safe stay legendary take good care of yourself and everyone else you love and until we're together again follow your different <laughs>